Radio podcast. Now, we normally do comics, movies, TV, and pop culture. Uh, one of the aspects of pop culture that I love is music. Um, I'm a big music guy. I've been in bands for a long time. Actually, Hassan and I wrote uh, the music to um, our uh, theme song that you that you hear very often. Um, as such, I also do a lot of freelance work for AM New York, and I get to interview awesome musicians, some of which appear on the Secrets of the Sire um, podcast, and some of which are now going to be displayed here on the Sire Spotlight. Um, I thought it was very appropriate, the fact that uh, Billy Corgan and the original, almost, uh, lineup of Smashing Pumpkins just put out a new album, Shiny and Oh So Bright, so I'm going to give a quick review, and then I'm going to show you um, and stream for you our my interview with Billy Corgan in its entirety that I did um, last year, uh, right up to the point where his uh, new solo album was in the works. So... If uh, without further ado, let's talk shiny and oh so bright. Um, there's a there's a definitive um, capturing of the old pumpkins. There's no question. There's inspiration here. Now I'm a big pumpkins fan, and I've kind of rediscovered them over the last I don't know uh, three years or so. So I got a hold of Zeitgeist. I got a hold. I loved uh, Oceana. Thought it was I thought it was actually more classic pumpkins feeling than anything else. Uh, Monuments, uh, the one that came out with Tommy Lee as the drummer, uh, was def was definitely lacking. Uh, that felt like more like a Billy Corgan solo record. Um, he he gets into these electronica kind of kind of things, and we'll talk about that for Shiny Now So Bright. That I'm not exactly a big fan of. Um, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of guitars and and the psychedelic aspect to it. In that regard, Shiny and Oh So Bright kind of falls a little short. Um, there's a couple of moments where you kind of get that um especially in track two uh which is which is obviously the most popular one i think at this point um where you know you, you do get to see a little bit of that it's uh the silvery sometimes ghosts song um and i think it definitely is uh, a great track but you don't get the psychedelic stuff what you do get though is jimmy, Ch jimmy chamberlain on the drums um rocking it out i mean matt byrne who filled in for jimmy on oceana was actually a pretty talented drummer and had a really uh, a couple of really great tracks, um, but you, you get I mean you just don't get the same thing. Uh, Silvery sometimes travels, Solera, marching on, uh, you know the, the with sympathy seeking you you shall destroy. I mean these could all fit. Now it's slickly produced. I think there is a certain quietness to um, what Butch did on Siamese Dream that that really. Uh, and Gish that really made those records really great. Um, Melancholy kind of followed in those same footsteps. Um, so if you're looking for that kind of sound and that kind of mixing and that kind of just engineering, it's not here. Um, but again, you can tell, it's amazing when you can do, when you can just, you can tell when a band is inspired. I think they're all pretty excited, be it money, be it trying to get themselves into the Hall of Fame by, by reuniting, whatever the case is. Or just being genuine friends again, um, you can tell there's an inspiration here. Now, obviously, I'd be remiss to not mention the whole Darcy thing. Uh, my take on Darcy not being here. Uh, I don't think Billy... I, or, let me just say this. I think Billy's a savvy enough businessman to know that having all four members would have been a better um, experience. Now, for whatever reason, people are saying jealousy. People are saying, you know, I, I have no idea. She's gone on record on, on uh, different websites like AlternativeNation.net um, saying that Billy just wanted to cut her out and was always jealous and this and that. 
I think there's probably an aspect to it. I'm sure there's an ego aspect to it. But I can't imagine. He's a savvy enough guy to know that having Darcy in full on this record would be a would be just a way better um, experience for the fans. And if it's for Hall of Fame purposes, would help catapult them into the Hall of Fame. So, but I just don't buy it. I really do think physically something is not quite right. He's made reference to that where she's been unhealthy, um, she's recovering uh, from different um, ailments. Uh, I won't go into the, any addiction uh, history she may or may not have. I don't have the facts on that. I don't want to speculate, so that's not what I'm here to do. Um, but I think physically, and I think also, look, if you, I have interviews with Butch Fig. I actually can um, display for you guys um, in a, f a couple of months, actually. I have, a, a couple, I have two Butch Vig interviews, and one touches on Smashing Pumpkins. And... You know, he mentions, look, Billy Corgan, at the end of the day, was the better musician. Um, you know, all the bass lines on Siamese Dream, um, and even in uh, in Melancholy, you know, for the most part, Billy was the one who wrote them, and, and they used Billy's bass lines. Um, you know, so I think there's something to that, too. I think, you know, like I said, Billy would be too smart not to include her. Um, but, hey, um, you know, for right now... We're, we're, we're focused on the present, uh, not necessarily the past. Um, and the new record is solid. It also does, though, mind you, as solid as it is, has some of the worst tracks I've ever heard. Knights of Malta is god-awful. Um, it's the lead track, so at least I could skip that very quickly. Um, Alienation also, too. I mean, I, I, I don't like it when... I don't like the electronic stuff that Billy got into with the door. I don't like any of that stuff. So to me, Alienation uh, is god-awful. Knights of Malta... Sounds like a pop, an attempt at a pop record, and comes up very, very short. So, um, you know, I think, in general, if we can avoid those two tracks, the better. Um, Travels, I think, is beautiful. I think Silvery Sometimes is also just an amazing, amazing track. Um, Marching On, I mean, it's, you know, there's some really great ones here, and there's inspiration. You can tell the band's pretty inspired, so... That's my take on the record. Um, we're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. We're on all these things. Um, I will comment after uh, after the fact. I just uh, obviously just can't uh, do it while I'm doing this. And um, without further ado, I want to hand you off to my interview with Billy Corgan. Uh, this is circa last year. I'm really excited to get these things out here. We're going to be doing these every single week. Next week, what we're going to do also uh, is bring you my interview with Ed Kowalczyk. Um, which was right around the time Live had broken up and he was doing solo stuff. Um, we've also got Live's drummer, uh, Chad Taylor, who's amazing. He's just an amazing drummer. So, um, you know, anyway, without further ado, I give you Billy Corgan. Um, so speaking of all the lineup changes that the Pumpkins have endured, um, if you kind of essentially carrying on the mantle, um, you know, when I heard you were releasing a solo record, you know, my mind was kind of like, well... Why not just make another Smashing Pumpkins record? Um, but then heard the first single, and it, you know, it kind of makes sense. The single is, you know, it's just a completely different sound. So, uh, tell me about the solo record. Tell me why, why do a solo record, and and, and you know how the sound is kind of is, is different than what you've done before. Okay, well, I, I sort of reached the point. Um, I was actually working on a follow-up to the last Pumpkins album, which was called Mind with Tonology. Yep. And uh, about halfway through the record, I kind of lost my mind and I thought I can't do this anymore. I sort of, 
I just ran out of gas on trying to do Smashing Pumpkins music, so I wrote a, a batch of songs that ended up being the foundation for this record. And uh, I found that if I just let myself naturally go where I wanted to go, that it was more acoustic and less, you know, whatever, future rock or something. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's how I ended up, you know, uh, this long winding road of, of working with Rick Rubin and and uh, making a, you know, a somewhat stark solo record with no drums and, and um, um, putting it under my name. I mean, I, I'm with you on that. I, I Sometimes I, I question my own sanity because... You get this. You get to a point in the world where it's like, uh, you know, there's this old saying like, "What's in a name?" You know, it's like yeah. if I write the songs and I sing it, and, and I, I call it Billy Corgan, or I call it um, Smashing Pumpkins, or I call it, you know, you know, the Moon and the Stars, or something. It's sort of at some point, it sort of doesn't feel any different to me, but people really perceive it differently. Um, and so, but it just felt right, you know, and and and. And, and and I, I will say this, in the, and I mean this, in the, it's, a, it's like a positive negative. Mm -hmm. I get I get tired of putting out Smashing Pumpkins music and then having to answer the question, well, why should we call this, why should we accept this as Pumpkins if it doesn't involve if you're a band member, you know? That gets sure. hard, too. So um, I'm happy to just do something where it's like it doesn't have any of that baggage where it's just strictly, you know, here's the songs I wrote, this is me, and if you like it, you know, great. No, I think that it actually it's a great uh, great segue into into my other uh, question too. It it seems like um, one of the things that you know in in listening to the catalog through the 2000s and and even a little bit in, in of of monuments and a little bit of uh, of Oceana, although I think you, you kind of went back to a little bit. There's less of the quieter um, songs, you know, things like uh, you know songs like Soma, which I loved, and 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 uh, you know even you know mayonnaise on Siamese Dream. There was that. That quiet psychedelic rock, but um, but then I heard, you know, the the new single, and I'm like, oh, you know, in a way, it's not psychedelic rock. Just don't get me wrong, I'm not confusing the two, obviously, um, but it seems a little more quiet or a little more, you know, uh, you know, intimate. Um, is that kind of like the the vibe of the rest of the record? I've only heard the first thing, so I'm, I'm kind of. Oh yeah, yeah. The record the record doesn't have any drums, so if you hear the the first song that came out, which is Aeronaut, um, mm -hmm. the whole rest of the record's kind of got a similar vibe, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, was that a, is that a conscious thing, or, or like you said, you just kind of lost your mind a little bit in terms of making pumpkins and, and wanted to do something completely different? Yeah. At, at the risk of sounding disingenuous, I mean, I think I do better if it's if I just go where I'm interested uh, musically and I don't get involved uh, intellectually about why something makes sense. Um, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. No. I, no. I, absolutely. Actually, no. Because uh, you know, I'm a musician and an artist and. And I, ho and I, have, I you know, host the radio show and everything like that. And when we when we just have a good show, we just have a good show. You know, there's just there's nothing. Yeah. There's no formula yeah, to just do. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, it's it's like I just that's why I think the key moment for me in this part of my life is I was making a record called Smashing Pumpkins, and I just wasn't feeling it. So rather than say I have to do this or I should do it or if I'm gonna do it, it needs to sound like Spine Stream Two or you know whatever this sort of intellectual overlay that you can put on an idea, I was like, no, I'm just going to go home and write some songs, and wherever those songs go, that's where I'll follow, and that's how I end up here. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about working with Rick Rubin on it. I, I, I read the um, the briefing on it, and, and he was a you know powerful influence on this. Um, and then also talk to me, you know, how do you normally produce a record? Like, who do you normally work with, or, or is, it, is it usually self-produced? You know, how do you, how do you yeah. go about that? 
Um, I'll go backwards first. Um, generally speaking, I've always been super involved in the production of the records, and somewhere along the way I felt like I'd sort of learned enough where maybe I didn't need a producer as much as I did when I was younger, but that doesn't mean they didn't mightily contribute to whatever I did. In fact, they contributed more than me. Um, but it's like going to college or something. At some point you feel like, okay, I've taken enough classes, now I want to kind of try this on my own. So for the last 10 years, I've pr primarily produced myself. Um, although I've had help, but um, uh, with this, um, you know, when I talked to Rick about doing the record and he said he was interested, I said, I'm just going to get out of the way and let you do your thing. I, I really just want to be an artist for a change. I, I don't want the, I, want, I don't want the additional pressure of being a producer. I'd rather just be the artist. Tell me when to show up, you know, you know, let's agree on what songs we want to do and I'll just do my best. And that's what I did. And uh, talk to me about the actual, um, you know, the tracks on the, on the albums. Like I said, I've only been able to, to hear the singles, so I'd love to, I'd love to learn more from your, your perspective, um, you know, about the different tracks. Yeah. Uh, essentially, just um, did everything live as far as the basic tracks. So recorded either acoustic and vocal or piano and vocal, and then once we had the whole album um, as a sort of stark, um, you know, stripped down version. Then we started trying to do some some overdubs, and then after that, just did a bunch of stuff like extra pianos, and it's it's very acoustic feeling. It ended up being that way. I think there's almost no electric guitar, um, there's okay. some strings on there, and some mellotron and stuff like that. So it's not completely out of sight of the range of things I would have done in the past as far as how I would overdub, but without the drums, obviously, it feels a lot different. How do you uh, how do you feel about yourself as a singer? I, I kind of look at you um, as as just a total musician, and, and reading more and more about the work you did on on Siamese Dream and, and Melancholy too. Uh, I was I got I got to interview uh, you know uh, different different producers and stuff, and just people in general. Um, was Butch Vig on? Butch Vig was one of your producers, correct? Yeah, Butch produced um, Gish and Siamese Dream. Right. Okay. Great. So I, I did good. Okay. So I was able to interview Butch, and you know, and he had mentioned too just how much you know you had kind of you know done yourself, and 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 so really just from a musicianship level, uh, the amount of respect I have for you as a musician, your voice is is a, is a unique voice that you kind of crafted this this particular sound. Um, but how do you view yourself as a singer, um, and, and especially on an, an acoustic record, which is what you're kind of putting out now? I mean, is there any Nervousness? Do you view yourself as, as a singer, or is, is there, you know, uh, you know, how do you, how do you approach it, and how do you feel about your own your own like singing voice and your own, you know, especially on a record stripped down to this? Well, it's it might be a strange way to answer the question. I think I think when you have a strange voice um, or an uncommon voice that you can't necessarily change into a normal voice. Like it doesn't matter how hard I try to sing normal, I sing weird. I just do. <laughs> so along the way, I think when I was younger, my way of dealing with those feelings was saying, I'm going to craft a kind of a personality like you would craft a guitar sound or something, and sure. I'll, sing, I'll sing in that character. And then through the years, I realized that maybe I didn't need to do that as much, and that as I learned how to sing over time, mm -hmm. um, then I had more control emotionally and technically over over what I do and now I don't have to think about it as much but at the same time I'm still aware that my voice is is a strange instrument mm -hmm. um, and that not everybody 
understands it. And the only other data I have on top of that is the people who like my voice really do like my voice. Like, there's something in the emotional quality of my voice that they really like. Yep. It's, it's that same quotient that also makes other people not like it. But it's not, it's nothing I have any control over. You know what sure. I mean? It's not like, it's not like I'm putting on a funny accent and singing in a funny accent and, you know, like Jerry Lewis or something like, oh, you know what I mean? There's no, there literally is no, um, like, like the other night I went and saw a yes with, um, Rick Wakeman and, um, John Anderson. And, yeah. and John Anderson's voice, I mean, it was unbelievable. He sang like every song in the original key. He sounded phenomenal. I was astounded. But when you go yeah. talk to John, I talked to John Anderson for a minute after the show. It was very nice and it was an honor to meet him. But you know, he has a very strange voice. You know, it's a it's a one of a kind voice. There's only one guy in the world who sounds like John Anderson. Yeah. And and, and I'm talking to him and I'm, I'm literally hearing that voice in, in conversation. And it's as weird as mine. I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is, you know. And I and I heard people say the same thing about yeah, like, oh, you know, the music's too weird and the voice is too well. That's the that's the sound. I mean, for me as a fan, I love it. I I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, so, yeah. I kind of get that. I guess what I'm trying to say is I kind of get it the best I can get it, but it's not like I have any control over it other than doing my best. No, and I, I personally love it, but I you know I I, I agree with the answer. It's um it's a unique it's a unique sound for sure. Um, take me back to the early days of success for you. Um, I heard a great interview you did. Uh, it was actually on the Dan Lebatard show on ESPN, and you were talking about, you know, how conflicted you were that you were successful in making money, even though at the same time, you know, as a as a band and, and, and as a musician, you know, you want your music to be heard. You want success in that sense. Um, I, I love just you know kind of touching on that a little bit if you can if you can bring me back to those days. Well, you know, also too in the early '90s, the idea of, the, of integrity and selling out was like a really big issue to that generation. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of street cred authenticity, which of course now is completely manufactured. Um, right. And so to even try to bring people back to those times of innocence, where you know who you knew and what club you played and what label you're on, signified something about your moral character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, for us as a band, we were, you know, we, I know it sounds strange, but we grew up in kind of a bubble in Chicago, even though it's a major city, it was very disconnected from the music business. So because we didn't know anybody in New York and LA, and I don't mean just people in the music business, I'm talking about like the cool guy from the Village Boys or something. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when we showed up, when we showed up in the international corridors of media, LA, New York, London, Tokyo, we were, we were literally aliens. You know, we were like from another planet playing a style of music that they didn't understand. They didn't respect the resources um, or the influences. Like the, the fact that we were quoting Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, UFO, Cheap Trick, and, you know, Seven Seconds was beyond their pale. Yeah. And we were we were checking the right boxes on the cool, you have the right influences list. You know, back then everyone would say, Oh, I love Sonic Youth. You know, it's like it was like the standard answer you got. You said to a music critic to let them know you were cool. Yeah. Um, and so because we offended those people, you know, we immediately entered this weird buzzsaw of, well, who are you and what are you doing here and why are you piggybacking on our precious scene? And of course, you know, you saw those same stresses and 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 uh, agendas put on Nirvana, Pearl Jam. Yep. 
Nine Inch Nails, Courtney Love, Cole, you know, they all got the same thing. We just got a particular version of it. So it was, it was hard to reconcile this weird story of like, wow, you know, all four of us grew up working class. Yeah. You know, we all grew up, you know, sort of basically middle class or lower. None of us had, you know, rich parents or anything like that. None of us went to an extensive school. Um, and suddenly we're thrust into this bigger conversation about culture and integrity, and we're getting lectured by people who went to Ivy League schools. Yeah. It's yeah. very strange. It's very. It's a very strange position to be in because even if they're right about their snobbiness, they're not right about what it really means to come from the street, which we did. Sure. They yeah. just didn't. They didn't recognize the street we came from. It. It wasn't on their fucking map. Excuse my <laughs> uh, I also love, uh, you know, in that same thing, you, you kind of, you kind of just talk about, you know, EDM stars and, and even like the Kardashians and, and you're very unapologetic, you know, they're, they're doing something unique. And I actually, I, I like, I kind of adopted that mantra too, because for years, I think growing up in the nineties, you know, that's exactly what you, you kind of explained it very succinctly, you know, the selling out quotient and people kind of are angry at, the Kardashians because they make millions of dollars, they don't do anything, but what they do is they, they do something and they do it really well. And, and that's something you've kind of touched upon before. Yeah, I think we're long past the time of judging how people uh, gain success in the culture. I mean, you can, you can be very derogatory about it or you can be very celebratory about it. But the fact of the matter is, is there really is no difference in American culture anymore between what used to be considered highbrow and lowbrow. Yeah. Punk rock songs are used in telephone commercials. Um, you see celebrities who are really, really big celebrities routinely slumming to sort of gain some sort of credibility, you know, uh, with the masses so that they think that they're down with the people, you know. Yeah. I, I, there's just, it's, it's such a blur that unless you're... Um, let's call it a daily observer and commentator on the culture as it exists. Parachuting yep. and out making the occasional comment is sort of worthless because you just can't keep up with that jet stream anyway. And, and you know what? It's not going to slow anybody down either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other thing, too, you're very outspoken about is uh, is social media and, uh, and, and how dangerous it can be. Um, you know, for me, it's censorship. That's the thing that I'm, I'm, as an artist, I'm personally always concerned about. I'm concerned about not being able, you know, to express yourself in a logical or intelligent way without being shot down because your opinion doesn't doesn't jive. And, and that's something you've kind of addressed before as well, too. Well, I think I think even though it's a very quiet subject on the bigger radar at the moment, I think free speech is probably the number one issue in our country. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was, it's strange because we have some really, really big issues in our country right now. Um, and yeah. it's, not to, it's not to diminish them in any way. But my argument would be, very simply speaking as an artist, that as long as free speech is protected in this country, all the other ills in our society will be taken care of mm -hmm. more efficiently and quick, more quickly with more people participating in the process. Yeah. And when you try to silence people, however repugnant you find their opinions or their views, you're only delaying the amount of time it's going to take to get them on board if you if you are on the right side yeah. of the street with a particular issue. Shutting people down and, and silencing them and alienating them doesn't actually make them agree with you. In fact, it makes them want to resist you just on the face 
of the argument that you're not taking their opinion into account. In American society, if you can step back from the hyperbolic atmosphere that we have in our culture now, which, you know, it is what it is, American society is actually incredibly tolerant. We tolerate, and I mean this in a very wide sense of the word, we tolerate an incredible diverse set of opinions, cultures, styles. We are, you know, arguably the most progressive country in the history of mankind. And we've done it in a very short time. In terms of historical arcs, you know, we've moved very quickly and we've been very influential in the world. And so I trust that as long as we keep free speech at the center of our power as a country, we'll be fine, even though we're going to go through tough times. And maybe some of those tough times are warranted because we want to get to a better place. And it's going to be, you know, like the old thing, you take a step back before you take a step forward. It feels right now we're taking some steps back, but maybe hopefully we will take a step forward. But I'm utterly convinced that free speech is the most critical right in American society. And the minute you start diminishing that, and you see it happening daily, it is no longer a conspiracy theory. When you see the curtailment of free speech, particularly by corporate interests, who don't really care about the American Republic as much as they care about their bottom line and making sure they don't get attacked by some interest group. When you see that, and it's a daily story, that should alarm everybody, but it hasn't reached that level of alarm yet. Very well said. You've been very generous with your time, so I only have two more questions, and I really appreciate it. The obligatory is, you know, there's rumors of an original lineup, Smashing Pumpkins reunion. Is there anything that you could talk about with regards to that? Yeah, I mean, generally, you know, there's been a lot of poking around. I'm hopeful, and hopefully it will happen, but I can't say for sure it will, and I can't say it won't, you know. The good news is that the issues that were in the way, which really were more personal than professional, a lot of those have been sort of sorted out the last few years very quietly between particularly me and, you know, some of the ex-band members. So I'm very happy with that. I mean, I have peace in my life in a way that I hadn't had for a lot of years, and that, you know, that even, you know, James is on this record. Unfortunately, you haven't heard the song, but there's a song in this record that James plays on, you know. To have, you know, James and Darcy particularly back in my life is a great thing. So whether or not we play, if we play, how we play, where we play, what we play, that is all totally secondary to me beyond the fact that we're, you know, we have, you know, this reestablishment of the relationships, because that's really what drove the music in the first place. Sure. Well, that's great news, and I'd love to, I hope it keeps progressing in a way that we get to hear. We get to hear some music out of you guys. Last question. This is a pop culture podcast after all, so I have to definitely, we focus on superhero movies and comic books and things like that. You know, are you into any of the comic book movies or the Comic-Con scene? Did you read comics as a kid? You know, what kind of pop culture do you consume? I was a big, huge Marvel fan as a kid. You know, loved Iron Man and a lot of other stuff, and through the years have even collected old vintage Marvel stuff. And 
As far as the comic book movies, I, to me, I just, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> they, lost, they, they lost me about Iron Man 1. I think that was my last, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I get it in the sense that I, I really think it's awesome. And somebody who grew up in the, in the, in, in the, you know, like I went to Star Wars the day it came out, you know, the original yeah. 19-whatever, 77 version. So as somebody who grew up in era that saw the dawn of what is now the, the modern version of that, and how yeah. it went through like a terrible time in the 90s and it's made this incredible comeback and to see what you know stanley and jack kirby and all them built um you know even the batman stuff it's it's, it's really cool as a fan but yeah. i think that the the economic part of the movie business interest in terms of how it's influenced those movies to where they feel less original I will, I will say, though, to not sound completely like a negative guy, I thought the uh, Doctor Strange movie that came out, I guess it would have okay. been out about a year ago, I thought that was really like, okay, I thought, okay, now this is somebody that's actually doing something different, and this feels right to me as a fan of that that character. I thought that was that was really awesome. But overall, like the third, fourth, fifth Spider-Man reboot, you know, super CGI, I just, I can't do it anymore, and, and maybe I'm showing my age, but they kind of lost <laughs> me once away on that. Um, yeah, because because I will say this real quickly, and and I'm saying it as a fan because I know you have people, and I don't want to be that guy. I'm not, <laughs> not, I'm not, not being a hater. What what if you go back and read the original Marvels? What was really attractive was that there was always a sense that in amongst the superpower stuff was it was a friendship and camaraderie and kind of a uh, a piss take on on modern culture, kind of making like you know, the sarcasm was always kind of part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I think when it gets too CGI, too over the top, too ridiculous, I think mm-hmm. an old school fan like me feels a little bit like, this isn't really why I'm into this stuff. Yeah. And I go back, and let's, real quickly, I'll go back to the first Star Wars movie. Um, you go back and, and the special effects are a bit soggy and stuff, but the relationships in that movie are so strong. And the, and the way those characters seem to bond together in a, in a particular way, that's what makes the movie so special. Yeah. So as long as you always have that, I think the other stuff is the cool part. But if you miss the, the relationship part, like in the Fantastic Four, if you don't have that relationship, it's just, then it's just another movie. And and these days, anybody can make those movies. I mean, there's so many CGI movies, it's like you can sure. lose count. Sure. Um, real quick. That's not you in Small Wonder, right? And how many times have you gotten asked that? Oh, Jesus Christ. If, 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 I, could, if I could reach for the phone and strangle you, I would. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, I will say though, in, in, to, to, to carry the joke on, that joke went on for a while. God knows how it started. It was like a weird urban myth rumor. And then yeah. it turned into and then it turned into Manson. <laughs> so somehow he, he started getting it. And I've been with Manson when people have come up to him and asked him if he was the kid in Small Wonder. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so somehow the urban, the urban myth of me, it was me, turned into Manson. So I'm very happy to say, I'm very happy to say it is him, and, yeah. uh, and, and you can ask him about it next time you talk to him. <laughs> Billy, uh, this has been an absolute delight. I really, like I said, been a huge fan for a long time and just rekindled my fandom into your music uh, the last, you know, you know, three, four years or so. Or so. so it's been uh, uh, just really great timing. And I'm looking forward to the solo record and trying to score tickets to the show as well, too. All right. That was uh, Billy Corgan.
thank you guys for if you're stuck around this long please uh, subscribe to us if you're watching us on YouTube please hit the subscribe button that's great we're gonna be doing this every week like I said had a little interruption with uh, some new baby stuff which is fun um, kind of fun little thing you know re-listening to that interview too though hearing him talk about Darcy and his life you know so it's kind of it's interesting how um, you know, that, that, that went from being like hey we're gonna get the full band to we're not gonna get the full band so very very curious as to what went down but uh, uh, you know we'll have to see we'll have to take someone's word for it uh, next week I'm gonna run the Ed Kowalczyk interview uh, in full it's a long interview it's about 30 minutes and uh, the Chad interview from the drummer from Lost. This is both of these took place before they got reunited, um, when Ed was doing a solo thing and Live was doing uh, their replacement with uh, with Chris Shin as the um, uh, lead singer. Um, and I'll give you my review of the new uh, Live record. So it's kind of cool. I like I enjoy doing this. If I can, uh, you know, talk with some people who uh, dig the kind of music I dig, then it's great. Um, We've got interviews with uh, Atlas Genius. I got interview with Chris Cornell, which I think you can check out on the YouTube page already. But I'll rerun it as a spotlight at some point uh, before he passed away. Um, you know, we'll talk about the stuff that they're re-releasing for him. Um, we're going to talk. Um, uh, you call him doing an interview with Macy Gray today, uh, which is pretty cool. So that will be up in a couple months as well too. With Young the Giant, we have I, Craig Finn from Hold Steady. I mean, I've got such a a library of, of these great interviews, so uh, really, really excited to uh, to break them out for you guys. So, all right, check out our regular show. It is um, Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, talkradio.nyc, and there we go. See you guys later.